Take your copy of God's Word and look to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We have been steadily moving through this wonderful book. Today, though, we are going to hit the brakes and slow down, and then next time we'll speed back up again. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. That is our text for this morning. It's obviously rare for me to preach just one verse these days. I normally try to stick with an entire paragraph or, or a thought or a section. I don't want to use this verse as just some sort of starting point, a springboard though. I... I don't want to launch off into something that I just want to say. There's too much of that going on these days. But when I began looking at this section, chapters 8 and 9, and I started considering how I wanted to break them down, this verse just keeps looming. It just keeps drawing so much attention. I'm not exaggerating when I say there's enough in this verse to keep us busy for weeks. We're not going to do that. I don't want to lose the context, but I do think it will be beneficial for us to stick to this one verse today and at least try to milk it for what it's worth, doing our best to keep it in context at the same time. There's just so much here. It is is pregnant with theological richness. I hope you can see that before we're done today. Listen to what John MacArthur had to say about just this verse. In his commentary on 2 Corinthians, he writes this, quote, This verse is a Christological gem of incalculable value, a multifaceted diamond that far outshines all the other jewels around it. The wonder of this verse is captivating. Its vast scope, profundity, and impact transcend the simplicity of the 21 Greek words that comprise it. Its truth is not couched in technical theological language. Its words are not complex or confusing. Although its message may be grasped in one reading, the truth it contains may not fully be comprehended throughout eternity. End quote. That's quite a statement coming from one of our generation's greatest scholars, but I do not believe that he is overstating it at all. This is very rich. But before we get into the richness of this verse, let's make sure that we are all on the same page context-wise. I hope you recall chapter 8 begins a new section in 2 Corinthians, a section that is only two chapters long, chapters 8 and 9. These two chapters address, or maybe I should say readdress, a love offering to be collected in Corinth and sent to the poor saints in Jerusalem. I say it readdresses that because the Corinthian church had agreed initially to offer monetary relief to the poor in Jerusalem, but, and I think we can reasonably assume because of their strained relationship with the Apostle Paul, but the collection effort had stalled at least for a while. But 
Titus just got back from there. And when Titus was there delivering the severe letter that was written between 1st and 2nd Corinthians, their recommitment to this effort seems to have been sparked again. So here in these two chapters, Paul is urging them to finally follow through with their promise, with their pledge. Well, the first thing he does in this section is challenge them. Some might even say shame them. Paul offered the example of poor saints in Macedonia, the churches of Berea, Thessalonica, Philippi, those churches, poor churches. He offered the example of them sending far and above what anybody would think possible to help the people in Jerusalem. Here's what he says in verse 1. Notice, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, for in a severe test of affliction, most likely persecution, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Those two things don't seem to go together. They're extremely poor and yet they're very generous. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. And now Paul is urging the more affluent church, the church in Corinth, to follow the example of the poorer churches in Macedonia. In fact, in verse 7, Paul says this relief effort was an act of grace, just like worshiping, singing, praying, reading your Bible, living a morally pure life, or anything else that the Bible instructs us to do. Generosity is not optional for the believer in Jesus. It is considered as much a part of our walk with Christ as any other fruit of the Spirit. In fact, Paul says in verse 8 that the recommitment to help the poor saints in Jerusalem would prove that their love also was genuine. Just judge your own generosity and let that challenge you for a little bit. Now, the example of the poor saints in Macedonia taking from what they did not have and giving to the poor in Jerusalem was a powerful illustration. More than just a nudge for the saints in Corinth to reaffirm their pledge, but there is a far, far greater example of sacrificial giving than the Macedonian churches, and we find that example right here in our text this morning. Gary Miller refers to Paul's illustration in this verse as his biggest theological gun. Moyer Hubbard says, quote, in order to illustrate the point that genuine love is measured by sacrificial generosity, Paul offers the quintessential example of this principle, end quote. Amen. Amen. I think surely we can all amen that. The name of the sermon this morning is Jesus Gave All. Jesus Gave All. And in this one verse is the greatest example of sacrificial generosity in the history of mankind. And our pattern of life should reflect His example. All right. 
Let's see what we can break apart. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. Paul begins with, for you know. This is, this is not something Paul needed to fully expound here. This is something these saints that Paul said in verse 7 excelled in faith and speech and knowledge. These saints understood the gospel. And the understanding that Jesus is in fact God in the flesh. They, they knew that. Guys, listen, without the deity of Jesus, without understanding that Jesus is God, Christianity pulls apart at the seams. The foundation crumbles. It's a house built on sand. Look, even grace is here attributed to our Lord Jesus Christ. And we, we talk about the grace of God, and that's good and, and right. And yet Paul here talks about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, equating Him with God. Now before we get too far into this richness, let me offer some foundational information that is greatly important. We serve a triune God. We refer to that as the Trinity. In other words, we worship and serve one God in three persons. We do not serve three gods. We serve one God in three distinct persons. God was a trinity in eternity past. He has continued to be a trinity throughout human history. And He will always be our Trinitarian God throughout the eternal ages. Any suggestion that that has ever changed or ever will change is a fundamental misunderstanding of the very nature of God Himself should be considered heresy and blasphemy. In biblical doctrine... Edited by MacArthur and Mayhew, here's what we read, quote, The doctrine of the Trinity, simply put, is that God is absolutely and eternally one essence, subsisting in three distinct and ordered persons, without division and without replication of the essence. That's, that's a lot of theological jargon. Let me see if I can break it down. I'll do so in just a few sentences. First, the Father is completely God. He always has been. And He always will be. Second, the Son is completely God. He always has been and He always will be. Third, the Holy Spirit is completely God. He always has been and He always will be. And yet at the same time, the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. The Holy Spirit is not the Son or the Son the Father. And yet no division exists in the Godhead. Now, I know you can understand the words I'm saying. But you cannot understand the doctrine of the Trinity. It cannot be comprehended by the human mind. Now, I don't have time to go into the, the lengthy proofs that could be made about the Father being God and the Holy Spirit being God. They are there in Scripture, but that's not what this text is about. The point here in this text is that Jesus is God. And He has always been. God. Here's how Paul states that. Though he was rich. 
That speaks of His deity, His Godhood. This refers to Jesus in His pre-incarnate glory. Before there was ever a manger scene like we read about in Luke's Gospel, Jesus is God. Listen to me. Jesus did not come into being at the incarnation. That is a false view of God. No, Jesus has always existed as God in eternity past. In fact, when Jesus Himself prays to the Father in John 17, in His high priestly prayer, He said, quote, And now, Father, glorify Me in Your own presence with the glory I had with You before the world existed. End quote. If we had nothing else but that one statement from Jesus, and we have a lot more, But if we had nothing else but that one statement from Jesus, it is enough to prove that He claimed to be God despite what the Jehovah's Witness may teach otherwise. This line in this prayer unequivocally says that Jesus was present at creation and before. He possessed divine glory with the Father before the beginning. Even more clearly, in the prologue to his gospel, the Apostle John writes, most of you know this, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. That Word, by the way, contextually, it's easy to figure out if you just go read John chapter 1. That Word is Jesus. This means way back in Genesis 1, when we read, in the beginning God God created the heavens and the earth, Moses actually wrote of the person and work of Jesus. Jesus is the creator. That's heavy. Listen, you're going to have to put your thinking cap on to get all of this. But it is greatly important. This is foundational, orthodox Christianity. This means then, if Jesus is the Creator, He's not only eternal. That's enough to make us awe at who He is. But He's not merely eternal. He is self-existent. He exists because He exists. In other words, Jesus is the only truly independent being in all the universe. You say, well, we're independent Baptists. Not really. We need this air we're breathing. But Jesus has no need. Quoting biblical doctrine again, He is... Perfectly self-sufficient, not depending on anything outside of Himself for anything. He is therefore the eternal foundational being, the source of life and sustenance for all other beings. End quote. That's Jesus. Let me put it this way. Jesus was not caused by an act of creation because He's God. On the contrary, He is the cause of creation. 
because He is the self-existent God of the universe. Perhaps no better revelation of God's self-existence has ever been given to us than through the name that He shared with us through Moses. A name, by the way, that's used over 6,500 times in the Old Testament. In Genesis 3 at the burning bush, God shares His actual name with Moses. Yahweh. Yahweh. Exodus 3.15, God told Moses... Say to this people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. End quote. The Lord, capital L, capital O-R-D, more literally rendered Yahweh. Yahweh. Hang with me. I have a purpose. This name of God implies in itself that God is eternal, immutable, immutable, self-existent, that He is the God of the universe. He interprets for us what it means in Exodus 3.14. I am who I am. Or I am what I am. Or I will be what I will be. Any of those are acceptable translations. He revealed that to Moses in the same chapter. Why does all that matter? I mean, what does the Old Testament have to do with 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9? I mean, the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew. The New Testament was translated from Greek. What does it have to do with Jesus? I mean, you're reading about the Father back here, right? I'm glad you asked. Multiple times, New Testament writers quote Old Testament passages that contain the name of God, Yahweh, and they ascribe it to Jesus. Let me offer just a couple. You probably know these, but you may not have ever made this connection. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. This is a prophecy, by the way, about John the Baptist. Here's what it says. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, the way of Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. We don't have to wonder who that's speaking about. Matthew makes a clear connection to that prophecy with John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3. But the Lord in Matthew 3 is Jesus. He quotes the very passage that has the name of God, Yahweh, in Isaiah 43. That means Jesus is Yahweh. Another, Paul, Philippians chapter 2 says, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father, no doubt quoting Isaiah 45.23, which again refers to Yahweh. This Jesus is God. The New Testament writers certainly were convinced beyond any shadow of a doubt that Jesus is God. And really that should not surprise us because 
Prophecy after prophecy in the Old Testament say as much. Isaiah 9 quoted every Christmas. Here's what it says. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Or perhaps Micah 2, which prophesies Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, saying, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth the one who is to be ruler in Israel. Listen to how it describes Jesus, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Jesus is Yahweh. This is remarkably rich. And yet Paul sums it up in our text this morning simply by saying, though he was rich. (laughs) And what he's saying is, Yahweh Himself is Jesus. He's eternal. He, He created everything. He is God Himself. And yet Paul just says, though he was rich. Notice what comes next though. Yet for your sake, he became poor. Now some think this refers to Jesus' financial status when he was here on earth, that he lived in poverty. And while our Lord was not wealthy, for sure, he was also not destitute. His earthly legal father, not his actual father, but his earthly legal father, Joseph, was a carpenter. We know that that would have placed them above the poorest of the poor in Israel at this time. Jesus was not a beggar like many that he encountered in the Gospels. He was not. And furthermore, we know that the disciples had money and even a treasurer while money was donated to his cause by people. So it's likely that Jesus was not poor, not in Israeli terms at least of the first century. He probably lived about the same average economic status as any other Jew of his day. Paul's not speaking about abject poverty here. Now in contrast to Jesus' eternal glory as the second person in the Trinity, the poverty Paul speaks about here is His incarnation. And so John, still in the prologue, says, "...and the Word became flesh." and dwelt among us, and we've seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So in John 1.1, the Word was God. And in John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Listen, that same Word of Yahweh that came to prophet after prophet, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, a host of others, that Word of Yahweh became flesh in the incarnation when Jesus became poor for our sake. Perhaps no other passage spells this out as clearly as Philippians 2. Let's let's turn there and look at that really quickly. Philippians 2, 
We're going to start in the middle of a thought here, but Philippians 2 verse 6. Speaking of Jesus says, Who, though He was in the form of God, though He was rich, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Though He was in the form of God, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, Jesus selflessly did not latch on to that glory like most of us would have and not let go of it. That's not what He did at all. No, in the greatest act of selflessness in the history of the cosmos, Jesus willingly let go of that glory. Notice verse 7. But He emptied Himself. How? By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Yes, Jesus, the second person in the Trinity, Yahweh Himself, it says here, emptied Himself. Now let me be crystal clear here. This is important. This matters. Jesus absolutely did not ever, even for a millisecond, cease being God. Never. That cannot be. Listen, just logically, God can't stop being God. And, and if it were possible, and it's not, but if God could stop being God, then a non-God can't then become God again. Like, that's not, that's not possible. That's crazy talk. No, even in His incarnation, the whole fullness of deity dwells Bodily. Colossians 2.9. John's prologue ends with this amazing declaration. No one has ever seen God. That's, that's pretty strong when you consider the fact that men like Moses or Abraham or Isaiah saw God. What does he mean? No one's ever seen God. John tells us what he means. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is Himself God and is at the Father's hand. He has made Him known. Look, when people encounter a physical manifestation of God, they encounter Jesus who is God. Jesus revealed God perfectly to us then in the Incarnation. So Jesus unquestionably did not set His deity aside. He merely set aside the glory associated with it. And that temporarily. And in this sense, Paul says, for your sake, He became poor. Why? Philippians 2.8 being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Without question, Paul's description of Jesus' poverty, Jesus becoming poor, includes His redemptive work of dying on the cross for sinners in their place. But Philippians 2 is so rich in describing the Incarnation. But why do you think Paul put it here? I mean, Philippians is not really about the gospel. Philippians is a, a book that is about Christian joy. Why did you think he put it here? You think he had an ADD moment or something? No. Look, look at 
Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Let's just read the passage before. Here's what he says. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, then Paul launches off into all of that theology that we looked at. Guys, this is, this is powerful. Paul is essentially making the same argument here in, Car, in the letter of the church at Corinth that he's making right here to the saints in Philippi. Same thing. Follow Jesus' example. Jesus' example of sacrificial giving should stir, stir us to sacrifice our own good for the good of others. That's what the good for which Jesus emptied Himself. For our good, not for Him. So Paul says, for our sake, for your sake, He became poor so that, back to 2 Corinthians 8, so that you by His poverty might become rich. Paul is obviously not talking about money in your bank account. That makes absolutely no sense contextually. Especially considering the dirt poor status of the Macedonians we looked at last time. Right? <laughs> there is no way to make that argument without ripping this verse kicking and screaming out of context. Now our riches in Christ are spiritual. Peace with God through His sacrifice for our sins. That's where our riches are. Paul elsewhere wrote, In Him, in Jesus, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Like That's where our riches are. According to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. We are lavished with God's grace in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ. The riches we have with God, or the, uh, with God, the peace we have with God, the riches of God come through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the richness Paul is talking about here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. One more quote from John's prologue. In talking about the incarnation and the work of Christ, John 1.16 says this, quote, For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Well, wouldn't it just be great to think about the fact that we've received grace at all? Unmerited favor from God. And yet, the Apostle John was inspired to write, that we have received grace upon grace. Riches from God lavished on us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
Jacob shared a quote this week with me and Brian by John Stott. Here's what it says. Quote, The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives that belong to God alone. God accepts penalties that belong to man alone. End quote. Now that's heavy. But I think it certainly aligns with what we see here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. And let me, let me make this point, by the way, as plainly as I can make it. There is no room whatsoever in this verse for you to contribute anything to your salvation. It is not there. It is all accomplished completely by Christ. Period. Your moral reforms, as good as they may be, add nothing to the work of Christ on the cross at Calvary. Your submission to religious ceremony adds nothing to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Nothing man can dream up will fix and do better what Christ has already done. When He died, He said, It is finished. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. I don't, you don't see my name in there anywhere. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. That's what we say. In Christ alone, my hope is found. That's what we say. That's orthodox Christianity. That's the true gospel. Well, look, I hope we can agree that this verse without question is one of the richest statements in all of the Bible. I hope you've come to see that today. Okay, now, that's the meaning of the text. Why is it here? Another ADD moment by Paul? Is that what's going on? No, why did Paul pin these words here in a section devoted to sending relief effort to the saints in Jerusalem? Why did he put it here? That's the difficulty of exposition, though in this case it's not all that difficult. <laughs> Jesus saw our need putting it in our language. Jesus doesn't find things out, of course. He's all-knowing because He's God. But putting it in our language, Jesus saw our need and He rose to the occasion. Or by the text we've looked at this morning, He emptied Himself to the occasion. Look, I know I shared it last week, but let me share it one more time. Steve Lawson once said, No one has ever started so high and came down so low as Jesus did in His incarnation. Amen. But He did so willingly. This is what He desired to do. 
This was his prerogative. He is God. That means he is sovereign. So no one twisted his arm and make him do this. He did what he wanted to do, but not for himself. No. We know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, not for himself. Kent Hughes writes this, quote, this is, this, is, this is heavy. Listen to this. Though Christ in His pre-existence with the Father could hold a white-hot star in the palm of His hand, He emptied Himself of His riches and became one of us and then died for us. Such was His poverty. End quote. Though he could hold a white-hot star in the palm of his hand, he chose to come into the world through a mom so that he could die in our place. That, that is the incarnation. And that poverty is our example here in this text. In this context, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, this is the greatest example of sacrificial Christian generosity that Paul could possibly write about. And his intention then is for the Corinthian saints and us to reflect that same giving disposition that our Heavenly Father has. That's his point. You say, man, that is, that is high calling. Jesus said that you were to turn against yourself and follow Him. He said it up front. That's what it means to follow Christ. So look, despite what you might have thought last week, Paul is not actually trying to guilt the Corinthian church into giving just so they outgive the Macedonians. That's not it. On the contrary... Generosity, according to the inspired text of 2 Corinthians 8, generosity, Christian generosity, is rooted in following our great example, Jesus Christ. I'll close with this quote from the Apostle John, 1 John chapter 3. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. That's the way Jesus loved. And that's what this text, right here in a passage on generosity, is calling on us to do this morning. Stand with me, if you will.